Eric Riven is here, along with another episode of Aghast at the Past, 1892. Thursday, February 4th. Back once more to kick up some rocks and expose some dark tales and sordid secrets from our collective distant past. We have a bit to cover today, including a case tied to Jack the Ripper, the killing of a noted outlaw, and the usual assorted mayhem. So I wanted to do a national story first, but as I perused the front page headlines of some of the larger papers in America, there was nothing to signify truly monumental news. But one story that stuck out for me was published on page one of the San Francisco Chronicle. It reported a supposed astral appearance of a Russian celebrity philosopher named Madame Helena Blavatsky, who had died the previous May. She was a co-founder of the Theosophical Society, which promoted the advancement of theosophy, a religion which taught that the secrets of the world were held by a group of spiritual leaders known as the Masters, who resided in Tibet. These masters were very wise and possessed supernatural powers and preached the existence of a single divine absolute. So a medium and theosophist named Eugenie Bestie hung up a large canvas in a room somewhere in Philadelphia. The article doesn't specify the exact location, but after the canvas was hung, it was alleged that Madame Blavatsky's astral form appeared in front of the canvas, uttered the words, it is done, in a deep and solemn voice, and vanished, leaving her likeness permanently affixed to the canvas. So on to Fowler deeds. Here's a story out of the Sunbury Weekly News, Sunbury, Pennsylvania, page one, The title, A Brutal Crime. Mary Haffey of Mount Carmel, aged 23 years, who since birth has been half-demented, is in a dying condition at her home. And a story she tells shows that she was the victim of a brutal assault. Last Friday night, a dance was held at Mount Carmel by the Citizens Band, and a big crowd was in attendance. During the evening, Mary Haffey, with two other girls, entered the hall where the dance was in progress. She remained for an hour or more and then went out. It is alleged she drank some beer and some other intoxicating drinks. Later in the evening, she met several young men and took a stroll with them. She was not seen until the following morning when several miners who were going to their work discovered a woman lying near the large refrigerator of the Philadelphia and Reading Station. She was unconscious, and when picked up, was cold and stiff. A wagon chanced to pass, and the insensible woman, who had been identified as Mary Haffey, was taken to the home of her parents. A physician was called in and is now attending her. She is critically ill, and will hardly recover. Her statement is that on the night she went out of the hall with the young men, 
they gave her something to drink. Soon after swallowing it, she began to feel sleepy. An effort to arouse herself from the stupor proved unavailing, and she was soon unconscious of what was going on. The attending physician says the girl was criminally assaulted and that, in his opinion, the drink given her was drugged. An officer who was summoned questioned the girl and got a description of her assailants. Wednesday evening, Constable Niswender came to Shimokan and arrested a Shimokan young man, charging him with being one of the party. Thursday morning, the prisoner was taken to Mount Carmel and given a hearing. He proclaimed his innocence, and his friends say he can clear himself of the charge. When taken to the bedside of Miss Haffey, she failed to recognize him, and he was discharged. So, personally concerned about Mary, I felt moved to find out more about her. Specifically, I wondered, of course, did, did she die from this assault? It only took a few minutes on Ancestry.com for me to discover her fate, and fortunately it wasn't at the hands of these fiends. But her life was not long, and probably not easy either. She would work as a servant until 1905, when she died of pulmonary edema, fluid in her lungs. Next, the story of the end of an outlaw named Waco Hampton, as reported on by Arkansas's Fayetteville Weekly Democrat, page 3. This happened, by the way, in Oklahoma Territory. Oklahoma, at this point, was not a state and would not become one until 1907. Waco Hampton killed. The most bloodthirsty and at the same time the youngest desperado in the Indian country, Waco Hampton, was shot and killed yesterday morning by Deputy Heck Bruner. And his partner, one Brown, was captured and will be in tomorrow, if not today. Hampton is the boy murderer who was sent to the reform school at Washington City by Judge Parker last year for manslaughter and escaped, returning to the Indian country where he has since terrified the country. And last, he with his gang waylaid Officer Poor Boy and Whitehead and shot them to death. Young Hampton has been spreading terror in the territory and along the border for several months. It is thought that he and his gang robbed Summer's store a few weeks ago. Further particulars of the killing, as given by one of the posse, are as follows. We left our camp, which was located 10 miles from the place where we were told Hampton could be found. And after walking from 4 o'clock till nearly 7, and reaching the place where we expected to find our victim, good luck was ours. In about ten minutes after, we reached the place where we were told to await our man. He suddenly appeared on horseback, coming in our direction. Secreting ourselves behind the bushes, we allowed him to ride up within forty feet of our crew. When we called to him to halt and throw up his hands, which he refused to do. Instead, he threw himself on the opposite side of his horse and opened fire. 
We responded, and 15 or 20 shots were fired by our party before he gave up. Then his body had been perforated with bullets. This next story is one that did not receive a lot of national attention. Although it was followed with serious interest in New Jersey, where it happened, and in New York and Pennsylvania, its next-door neighbors. First, an excerpt from the original article printed in Camden, New Jersey's Morning Post, February 1st, page 1, to give you a graphic description of what happened. The headline? Murdered in her store. Newark, February 1st. Joseph Sr., night watchman at Foretz Hat Factory in Milburn, New Jersey, on returning home at 7.30 o'clock yesterday morning, found that his wife, Elizabeth, 70 years old, had been murdered and the house robbed. The woman's throat, hands, and arms were terribly gashed, and there were 11 stab wounds on her breast. Bureaus and boxes had been broken open, and closets ransacked, and everything was topsy-turvy. Before pillaging the house, the murderer had washed his hands in a pail of water. The pail was found under the kitchen table. The white oilcloth cover on the table was stained with blood, which had evidently dripped from the murderer's hand. Suspicion at once fell upon August Lentz, who formerly was night watchman at Foret's factory. He was discharged a month ago, and Senior got his place. It is said that Lentz cherished a desire to have revenge on Senior. Mr. and Mrs. Senior have been residents of Milburn about 20 years. He's a taxidermist and jeweler. The couple lived in a two-story shanty on Milburn Avenue, in the very heart of the town. They kept a little store in which they sold candy, jewelry, stuffed birds, and knickknacks of every description. The store occupied the front room of the first floor, and the only other room on the floor was the kitchen. The body of Mrs. Senior, when discovered, was cold. It lay in the store directly in front of the counter, with the feet towards the door. The face was smeared with blood and a great pool lay under the head and ran off in a stream for three or four feet. The wounds on the breast were mostly in the region of the heart. The woman's hands were terribly lacerated, showing that she had struggled desperately with her murderer. And in his efforts to finish his work, he had cut her fingers to force her to release him. The county physician believes that the woman was attacked from the rear and that her throat was first cut, the knife severing the jugular vein. The cut extended about two inches from the left ear. The woman, who was feeble from age and physical ailments, probably attempted to grasp her assassin, and he then jumped upon her and stabbed her until he was sure she was dead. The woman's left hand was clinched, but the right which was lacerated across the finger joints, was but half closed. A bloody knife was found near the body. It was an old-fashioned short table knife, 
worn almost to a point and not very sharp. It matched several knives found in the house and was probably found on the kitchen table by the murderer. A strong chain of circumstantial evidence has already been forged against Lentz. He did not appear at his boarding house on Friday last, and it was then discovered that his son's clothes had been robbed of a watch and about $4 in change. The watch was found in an orange pawn shop. Lentz had pawned it in his own name. On Friday night, Quinlan's factory was robbed. Lentz is a suspect of that. Early yesterday morning, Detective Conroy went to Newark and traced Lentz to a disorderly place on Halsey Street. He learned that Lentz left the house late Saturday afternoon and started for Milburn. Lentz is a burly fellow with high cheekbones. It is said in Orange that he had been borrowing money right and left from acquaintances during the past week. The police believe that he was preparing to go west. He knew of the general belief in Milburn that the seniors had considerable money. By Thursday, February 3rd, local papers were still reporting that August Lentz was the primary suspect. Among those papers reporting it, the Canton Independent Sentinel in Canton, Pennsylvania, who printed this on page five. Although the authorities of Milburn, New Jersey have no direct proof, still they are convinced that August Lentz, the German engineer at Forats Hatting Mill, murdered old Mrs. Elizabeth Sr., the wife of Joseph Sr., the night watchman in the same mill in her little store on Saturday night. Lentz was arrested Monday, and when told he was suspected of murder, he laughed and said he knew nothing about it. Robbery was undoubtedly the motive for the crime. So papers of this era are littered with accounts of robbery murders. And this one wasn't necessarily uncommon, except of course in its brutality. I mean, stabbed 11 times and a cut throat? Who else during this time period was known for extremely violent murder? If you guessed Jack the Ripper, you are correct. While newspapers were not connecting the slaying of Elizabeth Sr. to Jack the Ripper, interestingly, there are a handful of modern-day Ripperologists who are. One of the many suspects in the Ripper murders is Sewerin Klosowski, also known as George Chapman, a moniker he would take later in life from a mistress. He is known in history as the Borough Poisoner for killing three women by... You guessed it, poison, in late 1890s London, before being caught, arrested, tried, and convicted, and executed in 1903. Poisoning is, is a passive way to murder someone and does not fit the pattern of the killer of the canonical five, the five victims traditionally believed to be the grisly work of a single man known as the mysterious Jack the Ripper. However, Klosowski's wife, Lucy Baduski, who he didn't kill, although he threatened to, would later say he was extremely violent during their relationship. She suffered regular beatings 
and claimed he even threatened to behead her. That's pretty gloomy. But anyway, Klosowski was in London's East End in 1888, during the time of the murders of the Canonical Five. And according to his wife, out at all hours of the night, during the months those murders were committed. Um, yes, the evidence is tenuous, but it was enough for a Scotland Yard detective, Frederick Aberline, to believe he was Jack the Ripper after he was taken into custody, though not during the initial investigation. So why in tarnation would anyone connect Klosowski to the death of Elizabeth Sr. in New Jersey, of all places? Well, in 1891, Klosowski came to America and moved to Jersey City, which was only 20 miles from Milburn, where Elizabeth was killed. And not long after that, he had moved back to England. Let's head to Malden, Massachusetts now for a brief update on the Tina Davis murder case. On Tuesday, February 2nd, James Trefethen and his brother-in-law, William H. Smith, sat through an all-day hearing before Judge Pettengill as attorneys questioned witnesses and tried to position their cases in the best possible light. The outcome of the hearing would determine whether the case would move to a grand jury the following week. Professor Wood, who had been tasked with examining Tina's stomach, offered what he had discovered so far. She had died during the process of digesting her food, and she died three hours after she had eaten, he concluded. Her stomach was in a healthy condition with no traces of poison. Mary Davis, the victim's mother, was called to the stand and testified that her daughter had eaten supper at about five o'clock that night and had left home at seven to meet Bert Trefethen on the corner. She recalled her version of her meeting with Trefethen the day after her daughter disappeared. She said she had demanded that he produce Tina. He cried and said he couldn't. She then told him she knew he had gotten her daughter pregnant and that she had asked him to marry her. Trefethen called at the house once a week, she remembered. He knew of my daughter's condition about 10 weeks before she went away. Mrs. Davis then showed the court an engagement ring she claimed Trefethen had given Tina in 1890. Mrs. Davis continued her testimony in such a distraught condition, evidently, that she fainted on the stand, and the defense attorney, Mr. Coggan, could not cross-examine her. Dr. Durrell was also called to testify. He stated that not only had he examined Tina herself, but also her unborn child, which he determined was between five and six months old at the time of her death. He also stated, I have no doubt that the body of Tina Davis was alive when it went into the water and that death was caused by drowning. The woman was short and would not weigh more than 90 pounds. She was heavily dressed I think the plush sack was heavy enough to hold the body under the water. The organs were in a healthy condition and there were no marks of violence. Thomas Leahy, the bridge draw tender, 
recounted his discovery of the buggy tracks and the man who had heard the cry of a woman from the direction of the bridge. Frank Fitzpatrick told his story. He said he had heard the cry from between 7.30 p.m. and 8.15 p.m. But the most sensational testimony came from an Everett police officer named Alfred Tufts. He said he was on the corner of Ferry Street and Broadway the night of Tina's disappearance, not far from the Davis' store, when he saw a bay horse and buggy parked on the side of the road. A suspicious man stood beside it, with his coat collar turned up. Officer Tufts would later identify the man as William Smith. Tufts also looked closer at the buggy that night and remembered seeing a woman's dress sticking out of the side of the vehicle. It was about 7.30 p.m. Attorney Coggins then called a series of his own witnesses with the intent to establish an alibi for William Smith. These witnesses were mostly comprised of Smith's own family members who claimed that Smith was with them and that he went back home to watch his children that evening with no opportunity to participate in a murder. Judge Pettengill ended the day's hearing by stating that he had no doubt as to the probable cause having been shown in the Trefethen case. Well, let's end today on a slightly lighter note. No one dying, at least. Little eight-year-old Herman Gettler and Charles Stanton, aged 10, were arraigned in Chicago for drunkenness on February 3rd. According to a story off of a national wire service, the little fellows were placed on the stand, and from their childish lips was learned the story of their first jag. The older of the two said, It's just this way, Judge. Me and the kid rushes to Growler for the oldens. We go into Bill Hodnett's saloon and rushes to can. And first thing we knowed, we was glorious. See? His honor reserved his decision. <laughs> so I will translate. The expression rushing the growler was a pretty common one during this time, especially in big cities. Many parents would dispatch their children to the local corner saloon with a bucket or a can to bring back some draft beer for the evening meal. So basically, when these two young, streetwise boys obtained a growler brimming with beer, they of course decided to drink it themselves with a glorious outcome, to use their word. On the next episode of Aghast at the Past 1892, I promise more updates on the Frida Ward murder case. Again, she had been murdered by a young woman who was passionately in love with her, Alice Mitchell. Until next time.